Mike Rabinovich here, and this is the Modelos Conversations with Data Warehouse Experts podcast series. Our mission in these podcasts is to speak to the best minds in the data warehouse and BI space and to get their take on the state of the business and find out what they think the future holds. We are also committed to do it in a way that adds value to tech professionals, while at the same time it's clear and compelling for the business managers and executives they collaborate with every day. This podcast is brought to you by 7W Data, your go-to portal for all things data. Subscribe free for the latest news and events at www.the7wdata.com. That's www.7wdata.com. Follow on Twitter at 7wdata. In today's episode, it is my pleasure to speak with Chris Webb, an independent consultant specializing in Microsoft SQL Server Analysis Services in the MDX query language. He's a popular speaker and trainer, as well as a prolific blogger with over 1,000 posts that can be found at blog.crossjoin.co.uk. Welcome, Chris. Hi there. Can you tell us a little bit about your background, where you started out, and the journey that led you to set up your own consultancy? Yeah, sure. Um, I guess as far as Microsoft BI goes, I was in the in the right place at the right time. Um, probably not six months into my first ever um, IT job when I was, oh, how old was I, maybe 21, um, I was put on a project at a, at a market research company that had got a lot of experience with OLAP-like tools. They were starting a new project. Um, they had some advice from a guy called Nigel Penzi, who back then was the kind of leading guru and analyst of um, all things BI. Uh, and um, he said, you know, check out this new Microsoft tool. So uh, we started working with what became SQL Server OLAP services, which then became analysis services. Uh, and I guess that project, which I worked on for a, a couple of years, was, was, my, was my grounding in everything. Um, that was where I, I was able to kind of really, really properly learn um, analysis services and MDX. And after that, I worked in a variety of different jobs. I worked for Microsoft Consulting for a bit. Um, and then about, how long is it now? 12 years ago, um, I was in a situation where the company I was working for was going through a round of layoffs. Um, actually, I wasn't laid off. I was kind of left behind, but then it was clear the company wasn't really going to be what it was. And I thought, well, okay, I'll um, I'll, I'll maybe go contracting because I, I live just outside London and um, there's a fairly vibrant um, scene for people who do, you know, six months, year long con IT mm. contracts. Uh, what, I don't know what you call con is contracting a thing in America. Oh, it, it's it's a big thing. It's a yeah. big thing, Chris. And we oh. we we work with a lot of folks that are doing that uh, the six months to one year stint. Yeah, I never know whether it's the the same word though in America. I should know. No, it, in, in this case, it is. <laughs> yeah. Okay. So yeah. So I, I was thinking I I might go and do that. But then at the same time, I'd been I'd already been blogging for about two years. Um and. Well, I was I was still pretty amateurish, but it was it was still early days for blogging. And I thought, well, you know, wouldn't it be wouldn't it be interesting if I could kind of do my own kind of single person consultancy, you know, go around and do the interesting stuff rather than do the, the six month one year contract. So I put something up on my 
blog that I was starting up, set up a company and um, uh, carried on like that for, for the next 12 years and, and long may it continue. So um, how long did it take you to get some traction for people to actually start to consistently read your blog posts and, and retain you? Well, it's an interesting, interesting question. I mean, I think, I don't think I've ever been, I, I can probably only think of maybe two or three weeks in the last 12 years where I've been sitting around at home thinking, wow, you know, I wish I was working now. Um, <laughs> so I, I've been very, very lucky. And I, I guess I was just lucky that I, I already had a little bit of a profile um, before I started. Uh, I mean, I, I didn't ever start a blog thinking that it was going to be a way of making money. Um, the reason I started a blog was um, it was uh, at the time I was answering lots of questions on news groups which dates me um, and <laughs> I was I was in that situation where I was answering the same questions over and over and I thought well okay if I had a blog and this was when blogs were kind of like the, the cool new thing if I had a blog then I'd be able to um, you know write up these answers post them somewhere and then you know whenever somebody asked me one of these questions I'd say oh I'll just go away and read this blog mm. post um, and um, I don't know, I, I, I just kind of in, enjoyed doing it and um, carried on. And you know, when I go back and read some of my old blog posts, I'm a bit embarrassed. I think that the state of the <laughs> art in terms of blogging is, has moved on and I'm, I'm pretty sure I've got a bit better as well. Um, but uh, yeah, it was, it just started from there. And I, like I said, I was, I was blogging for about two years uh, before I set up on my own in, in 2006 or whenever it was. Um, so it wasn't, I, I'd love to say I had some grand plan, um, but actually it was all completely accidental uh, <laughs> on my feet. <laughs> You've been in the BI space pretty early on. Where have you seen the most significant changes in the BI and data warehouse space in the last five years and pretty much since you started? Well, I, I guess the, the obvious trend has been towards you know, self-service BI. Um, like all of these buzzwords, it's, there's, there's an awful lot of hype in there, um, an awful lot of um, marketing um, hot air. Uh, but I, I think it's, it's true to say that there's, there's been a, a real change as a result of it. Um, and even though, you know, I mean, if you think about the kind of strict definition of self-service BI where, you know, you need no IT involvement and end users just go and build stuff for themselves, obviously that's, that's um, well, I say obviously, but in my opinion, that, that's a load of rubbish. There's always going <laughs> to be a need for um, kind of some people there with some technical skills. I think what's, what's certainly the case and what, what's good about it is that it's, it's realized it's made a lot of IT people realize that, you know, they can't do BI on their own. Uh, and it's made a lot of um, business analysts and end users realize that um, they're able to do a lot of things themselves that, uh, you know, that the kind of IT people can't or won't. Um, so part of the growth, I guess, of, of, of BI has been this, this spreading out of responsibilities. It's made things not only more efficient, um, it's made things a lot more effective because you know the IT people do the things which 
they're good at, you know, building stuff like data warehouses, preparing data, moving large amounts of data around, doing things in a kind of not only a, an efficient but a, a reliable and a robust way. And the end users, the people who know what the data represents and who want to be able to go away and do something useful with it, they do the bits that they're good at. And, um, you know, not always, you know, there's a bit of a gray area in between some of the kind of modeling and defining calculations and things like that. That's where there needs to be some collaborative effort. But um, this kind of spreading out of responsibilities away from something that's purely IT department focused um, has been, I think, you know, probably the, 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 the biggest reason for the growth in IT, in um, BI, and also the kind of increase in effectiveness of it and the increase in the amount of excitement around it in this area. You brought an interesting point up uh, when you mentioned collaboration because this is something that, that we're working and focusing on because although the responsibility is being spread out to different skill sets within a, within a business, it also led to some silos where people are not working together. Do you see that in, in the project that you work on, the clients you consult with? Um, I think you see that in the, in the kind of dysfunctional projects. Um, BI for a long time had a very, very bad reputation for, for projects that were taking years and years and um, nobody was seeing any kind of business benefit. And I think the real, you know, the real cause of all of those problems is, is poor communication. It's the fact that, you know, IT people, well, as the stereotype IT person who doesn't want to talk to anybody and certainly doesn't <laughs> want to talk to the business. Um, but, you know, I think, it, I think it's equally true that the, the business people um, were often equally to blame. They didn't want to talk to the IT people. Um, you know, there's the, again, the stereotype of the IT department being banished to the basement or yeah. more often than not put in, in, in some separate building in a, a less desirable part of town. Well, uh, you know, the marketing and sales people get the, the prime spots for themselves. Um, and also, you know, something I see is that a, a lot of business people, less so nowadays and, and not, so, not so much with, with younger people, but a lot of people, you know, a lot of um, business people just simply say, well, you know, just give me a report. Um, I want to see everything mm. on it. Uh, just dump this on my desk every Monday and then go away and don't bother me anymore. Uh, uh, but they, they also kind of assume that, of course, the IT people know what they want. They know what the numbers should be. They should be able to spot mistakes and things like that. Um, you know, uh, and they're not really interested in collaborating with IT to, to try and build something that works. In the course of your day-to-day -day work, what are the key pain points that you observe businesses experiencing when it comes to data warehousing, ETL, and BI, obviously? I mean, I would say it's it, the the one of the main pain point is um, it's probably just lack of skilled staff. Um, I think it's the same with with all of IT really. There, there's always this gigantic skills shortage. Uh, there's always so much to do, and you know, so few people there to do it. Um, you know, partly you can you can blame it on the on the maybe unwillingness of people to invest in education, but really, you know, I think an IT experience is, is worth more than education. And um, the, um, what we find, I think, is that there, there's this just kind of ever, 
ever-increasing demand for BI and things, which then leads on to um, you know, an ever-increasing demand for people with skills in that area. And um, you know, companies are forever chasing new, you know, new recruits. They're trying to chase after and recruit people with some experience who, who, who really aren't there and aren't available. And um, that's probably the, the biggest kind of inhibiting factor, just having anybody that actually has some experience and has some skills in this area. When we look at the tools that these folks are using to carry out their, their mandates, do you think that what's in the market right now when it comes to especially, let's say, data warehousing are addressing the pain points? Um, yeah, I mean, I think to a certain extent they are. Um, but um, I think some of these, some of the kind of automation tools out there have um, perhaps not progressed as much um, as other areas of the of, of the BI industry. Um, this is somewhere where I think there there is still a, a lot of room for growth uh, and a lot of room for um, improvement uh, by the vendors. I mean, there's I think there's a gigantic amount of demand out there. Um, a lot of my friends are maybe a little bit sniffy about kind of tools that support <laughs> to, to, to kind of um, save time. But again, it's, it's the classic buy versus build argument. And like I said, the, the main problem that companies nowadays have is just having anybody on, start, on site with any kind of experience. And, um, you know, it's like saying, oh, well, you know, um, you know why buy a why buy something off the shelf when um, you know you could get somebody in to build a, a much better, uh, more effective, more flexible solution? Um, well, the problem is you've got to you've got to be able to hire these guys. You've got to be able to retain them. Um, you've got to be able to put them on that project and not something else. Uh, and you've got to you've got to make the best best use of your your staff's time. And um, what I think the IT people miss is that whole that whole kind of total total cost of ownership argument um, mm -hmm. where yeah yeah absolutely you know why buy why build something in a, a language like c sharp when you could get you know a rocket scientist from google in to come and kind of write something in assembler <laughs> that would be that would be way more effective well you know what most companies want is something that can be deployed quickly and works it doesn't have to be a, a rolls royce solution uh, but it's got to be something that's quick to deploy, something that works, something that starts delivering business value early on, and um, you know something that doesn't need a you know a degree from MIT in order to be able to maintain. Um, and that's where I think actually you know these tools, the, the kind of data warehouse automation tools, really start to deliver some value. Speaking of uh, the, the whole space of data warehousing, some pundits over the last few years have heralded the, the death of the data warehouse. What's your take on that? I think that's, that's again, kind of marketing hype. I, I, don't see, I don't see much evidence for kind of death of the data warehouse. I think it's true in certain scenarios where you're dealing with genuinely big data or genuinely fast moving data, um, the, the kind of definition of what a data warehouse is might change, might be changing. But, you know, in its broadest sense, a data warehouse is just a place where you can get hmm. kind of clean, conform, consistent data. 
Uh, and what a lot of people who claim they've kind of, you know, they're not building a data warehouse, a building is effectively just a different type of data warehouse. And after all, um, you know, the other thing that I certainly find is that most companies don't actually have big data. Now, some companies do, absolutely, but um, probably the, the vast majority of small and medium-sized businesses have got a fairly consistent amount of data. And I think the amount of data that they're working with has not changed all that much um, in the last 10 years. And for those types of customers, actually a, a kind of traditional relational data warehouse um, built on a you know, built on a platform like SQL Server, or you know, maybe in the future going to a, a cloud-based platform, they're going to see by far the most benefit from from building uh, a data warehouse rather than messing around with Hadoop or you know, mm. kind of other big data technologies. Um, because frankly, actually, you know, something like SQL Server will give them a much better experience and, and much better value for money. So I, I think actually the the kind of market and the potential market for a data warehouse is just growing and growing and certainly you know when you think about um, self-service BI and you know I'm doing more and more work with Power BI customers um, there's just this endless endless hmm. supply of companies you know, not just small companies but you know, fairly fairly large companies who are still doing all of their BI from Excel spreadsheets um, in fact, you know, probably I haven't worked with Excel spreadsheets as a data source so much as in the last two years when um, I've started doing more and more Power BI work. And as these companies start on their BI journey and realize the type of problems that you have with dirty data and inconsistent data and, you know, relearn all of those lessons that Ralph Kimball was writing about in the dim and distant past, um, explaining what a, you know, finding out what it actually means to have slowly changing dimensions. Um, in actual fact, these these are going to be the people who do end up wanting to build um, kind of semi-traditional data warehouses. And I, I would say, actually, these, these are going to be the people who are going to benefit most from uh, you know, kind of data, data warehouse automation tools, because they, they want to you know, they need a, a relational data warehouse. Uh, they don't want to, and well, they can't employ somebody or a team of people full time to go away and build one. Uh, they can't afford the time that it might take to build one from scratch. Um, and, you know, actually, a kind of a, an automated uh, or a kind of a, a kind of a data warehouse automation tool will give them almost exactly what they need. Do you think the proliferation of IoT devices and the explosive amount of data they're generating is going to have an impact on, on how companies go about developing uh, data warehouse and reports and, and, and BI? Yeah, for sure. Um, I mean, again, I'll qualify that, that, you know, not every type of company is going to have um, you know, that kind of data because some businesses will, will just never have that data. Mm -hmm. um, you know, I've got customers in, in all different types of industries and it's hard to see how, I don't know, just to take it random, I've got a customer I've been working with recently that's a, a wealth manager. They, they work with a very small number of customers and they, they manage these customers' investments for them. 
it's hard to see how there's ever going to be an IoT angle on that. Right. Um, but, uh, you know, equally, if you're in my, you know, manufacturing, um, also, you know, or, or other similar areas, there's, there's probably a, a lot of um, potential there still unrealized for, um, you know, for, for kind of IoT, for using IoT. Uh, it'll be interesting to see whether there is anything that justifies the investment, because of right. course these companies have been going on, you know, quite happily without knowing uh, how many uh, widgets their machines are turning out down to the um, exact kind of split second level. Um, maybe, you know, kind of daily level reports are going to be all that, um, you know, all they ever need uh, or all that actually gives them any kind of business value. But, um, you know, I think there will be whole new areas, whole new industries uh, where, where people are kind of generating more and more data. And um, it'll be, you know, and it certainly is the case nowadays that the, these new companies, these new business models and these new types of analysis are, are appearing. And um, this will be yet more um, opportunity for um, for analysis. But again, like I said, if you want to go down to the split second level, mm, yeah, that's going to be useful. But a lot of these IoT devices almost produce too much data for people to genuinely analyze. And, you know, as we found in the kind of data warehousing uh, realm for for a long time, aggregating data up to the, the kind of day level and other reasonably high levels of aggregation actually gives you all the data you'd ever need for, for kind of most analysis type purposes. So even if there is a lot of data being generated at the back end, um, it's the, the kind of summarized data that's going to be not only kind of sufficient, but also fast enough and easy enough to comprehend uh, and, you know, gives you the best bang for your buck from a kind of BI analysis point of view. Earlier in the podcast, we were speaking of the almost eternal conflict between IT and business and the need to understand each other and collaborate. In our projects at Demodlo, we often find the technical teams quite knowledgeable. It is on the business side that, that I deal with that we often find a knowledge gap. Mm -hmm. If there's one resource that you could recommend to the C-suite to help them on their BI journey, other of course than your blog. Uh, <laughs> I what don't think I'd be? ever recommend the C-suite to read my blog. I think they're, they're <laughs> dead a bit bored by it. I, I appeal to the geek market. And it's a good market. Um, would there be a resource that you'd be able to recommend to the C-suite where they can get a broader understanding and of actually the, 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 the value that, that IT and NBI does deliver? Um, I think in my experience, rather than, you know, C-suite gets so much, you know, they, they get so much material pushed on them. You know, there's magazines, books, management gurus. Um, the the real the real selling point, or the way I've seen the C-suite really convinced, is is almost it, it's almost from just kind of seeing their friends and peers and what they've achieved. Um, one of the interesting things that happens, uh, that's happened a lot with a lot of my Power BI customers is that um, Power BI is very good at, at, at doing kind of mobile reporting and um, the, you know, the, the C-suite love to have reports on their iPads and on their phones. 
And something that I've heard time and again is that um, you know, somebody senior in the company has been along to a meeting and they've been a, along to a meeting with other senior people from business partners or their customers or even just been out on the golf course or been out to dinner with their friends and you know somebody with power bi has whipped out their ipad and started looking at some hmm. reports and kind of handed it around and say look at this this is my new report on my ipad isn't this cool and um you know immediately people have felt wow you know that's that's what the benefit is um, it's just to be able to see how your business is doing wherever in a nice convenient way um, and that's that's what I've found has been the kind of biggest um, factor in getting senior people to take things on it, it's peer pressure basically uh, you know, there's no there's no amount of um, kind of pressure from the IT department to do things and you know, people zone out when um, you know they get told they should do things by you know a Harvard Business Review or whatever, you know, they'll, they'll kind of go through the lip, lip service, but um, they won't ever feel genuinely kind of passionate about it. But I suppose as with so much human nature, once you once you feel like you're going to be the one who's left behind, the guy who's kind of like looking at an Excel report um, that, or, you know, printed out report with 500 pages, and then you see you know, somebody you're doing business with kind of look at you with a slightly disdainful air and then show you their iPad based report with um, you know, these cool visualizations. That's the that's the kind of motivating factor. And like I said, I've seen that with a lot of my customers where the the the, the senior level people have come back from meetings with stories like this saying, oh, wow, I really wowed them with the, with my um, with my Power BI report. And equally, I've had customers where, you know, they, they there's this I, they've been on the the other end of the um, <laughs> equation where it's like, well, you know, the you know, the senior people they can't they can't stand this this old kind of Excel reporting that they they used to be so happy with. Um, you know, they're now saying, oh, you know, we've got to get Power BI because that's cool. You know, that's what everybody else is using. I want to report on my iPad as well. So essentially, what you're saying, Chris, is that the IT folks should. And the BI folks should clandestinely plant some reports on somebody's mobile phone and make sure that they take it to a meeting. And that's going to be the best <laughs> argument they can make in their favor. Yeah, and you know that's how it works internally as well. It's not just meeting customers. It's you, you know, with data warehousing projects, you've always got to have that kind of business champion. And um, you know, the business champion isn't just there to, to kind of go around and evangelize. You've got to you've got to make the business champion look cool. And if you I, can, you know, if you can make the business champion look cool and um, do amazing things, that's how you get everybody else's attention. You know, um, you've got to make them jealous and say, well, I want that too. You know, nobody listens when they're being preached to. But if you can, if you can make somebody uh, give somebody something that then everybody else is jealous of. That's the, that's the real way to spread, um, spread support for BI throughout the organization. <laughs> I love the approach. I think we're going to test it out and we're going to credit you with it. <laughs> <laughs> well, well Chris, Chris Webb said to do it, so there you have it. Um, so I want to move and segue on to some non-tech fun where we get to know our guests a little bit better. So I'm going to give you some questions and you go with them where you want. Sure. What is your current go-to television show that you like to binge on? Um, well, I guess it, it, it's interesting you can ask that question because now in the age of Netflix and so on, everybody all around the world will probably be uh, 
watching the same old stuff. Um, <laughs> well, not the same old stuff, but um, now we've kind of like a kind of global TV pool. Um, and what I've enjoyed on Netflix is somebody gave me a tip about um, a German sci-fi show called Dark, and actually that was that was really good. I enjoyed it. You were the second person that mentioned that to me. Who in the that? in the last three days, I don't know. I'm just as soon as he said a German show, I said like, oh my god, somebody were just yeah. talking about it. So what's what's it, it about? Um, it's kind of about time travel and wormholes and um, cool. people going back in time and meeting their parents and going back even further in time and meeting grandparents. Um, wow. it's one of those things that um, it would be complicated to explain. But you know, if you're if you're not only into sci-fi, but you know, also something that's a bit more um, challenging than maybe the Han Solo movie. Not that I didn't enjoy the Han Solo movie; I thought it was actually pretty good for a Star Wars film. Um, but if you're if you're into into something that's a bit more challenging than that, um, it's definitely worth a look. I mean, it's, it's you can have it dubbed or subtitled, um, right? So it's uh, it's quite easy to it's quite easy to consume. But it's definitely one of those things that. Um, you know, sucks you in and, and makes you think as well. And is this one season? Uh, yes, it's one season so far, but uh, at the end they've um, they've clearly left it open for a second season. Actually, I genuinely don't know if they're going to make another season. I hope they do. Um, but one of it, maybe like a lot of these programs, um, one season was enough, and the second season is them just milking it for, for further financial gain. That's the challenge with these things. I mean, sometimes it can really pull it off, but certainly not always. Yeah, I mean, you know, I, I quite enjoyed the second season of Stranger Things. Mm. Um, it'll be interesting to see whether they can actually keep it going for, for a third season uh, or, you know, indefinitely, I suppose. <laughs> the kids are going to grow up and be too old soon, aren't they? <laughs> they usually adapt to the audience and, and sometimes they do it pretty in a pretty clever way. And it depends on the type of show, because if it's something that's politics driven, you can always rely on the news to feed you that content. But when you take a yeah. little bit of a different approach, you really got to be a lot more creative, I think. Exactly. And there are a lot of clever people working in TV these days. Oh, yeah. The golden age of TV. So you know. I so agree with you. I mean, it's, it's <laughs> funny that you said that. I mean, it's it's like you say, it's, it's the golden age of the global TV pool. That's what it yeah. is. Uh, you know, a, a rebirth, the greatest but... minds to grow up to be kind of particle physicists or, you know, looking for cures to greatest diseases. You know, the greatest minds are now going and working and, and building writing scripts. Uh, writing scripts for Netflix. <laughs> and who can blame them? There's probably more money in that than in particle physics. All the particle physics is pretty cool, you got to admit. Yeah, it is. It is. <laughs> so my next question, Chris, is what is the best non-tech you've read in the past few months that you would recommend to all your friends? Um, I don't read anything kind of non-tech and non-fiction. Um, whenever I'm reading, I only ever read fiction, um, probably because I just do it to get a break from, um, from all of the tech that I'm forced to deal with every day. Um, so I've been... I've been kind of working my way through Julian Barnes, who's a, mm. a British novelist who's been around for, well, a, a long time now, but his his work is very, very consistent um, and consistently good, I think. Um, he's won, you know, he's kind of probably one of the, the leading British novelists alive at the moment, I would say. Um, not necessarily fashionable, 
um, mm -hmm. kind of daring, but um, very, very intelligent. And um, I, I, and also kind of writes, how should I say this, writes, writes about things from a kind of very me perspective where I'm a, you know, maybe a, a kind of middle class southern English person. So, um, you know, a lot of the things he writes about and the scenarios that he writes about and then the places he writes about. I, I read a book called Metroland, which was um, set more or less exactly where I live. Mm. Um, uh, that was um, that was something that I particularly enjoyed. And does he write about it on a certain theme, or is it a series, or are there standalone books? Uh, no, I mean that that was just one book. I mean the 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 last book of his that I read fairly recently um, was about uh, the 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 Russian composer Shostakovich and mm -hmm. uh, the uh, uh, an incident in his life, which um, wow. was, was about as different from from me or where I live uh, as, as you could probably get. But mm. um, that was that was also very good, very interesting, and again. It's um, intellectually very, very challenging, but you know, not like um, not impenetrable. Written in very clear, uh, easy to read prose, um, kind of like you know, uh, in the great tradition of people like George Orwell, um, mm. saying saying intelligent things, but in a very clear and complicated way. And that's what I that's what I admire. Um, you know, and again to go back to maybe to bring things back to tech the the real the real achievement of anything um anything technical is to be able to say you know not to be able to say complex things but to be able to say complex things in a way that somebody who is not technical is able to understand it and um you know that's what i enjoy in in prose and in fiction as well you know complex ideas but put forward in a way that um you don't need to have swallowed a dictionary to be able to understand. And with brevity. Exactly. Which you do not always find in, in tech stuff. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> well, kind of in, indeed, kind of any academic writing, uh, you know, jargon and you know, long, complicated sentences and um, all kinds of assumptions that uh, are things you know about that actually you don't know about and, and you know, so on. So you've built a successful consulting practice and you've been in it for 12 years or more. Mm -hmm. What is the most important piece of advice you would give an IT professional who is about to set up their own consultancy? I would say that if you do that, you've got to have, you've got to have something, some kind of pipeline there in advance. Um, you can't set up a company and then just assume the customers will come. And I think you also have to, understand that while traditional marketing methods have their place for for a consultancy i suppose probably true for any business you've got to have um you've got to have friends you've got to have a network you've got to go out there and meet people and if you don't if you don't do that you'll you know you however much money you spend on advertising or sponsoring uh, you, you'll never really get anywhere unless you make that kind of personal con personal connection so before you start you probably need to have um, you need to have a, a reputation you need to have some kind of network 
um, I guess this is what this is what my blog gave me uh, when I was starting out just that ability to to be able to put something out there and say hey you know you know who I am um, you know I've you know you've been reading my blog for two years you know I've met you I was already doing things like user groups and going to mm -hmm. conferences at that point um, you know I, I'm available to hire uh, and it's it's that personal connection that that makes people confident that you know that it's one thing to see ah you know person x is out there with a company they'll they say they can do a job it's another thing to have for, for somebody to have confidence that if they pay you this money you will do what you've said and um it's that confidence that you've got to you've got to win from people and like i said that's only i think that's only genuinely achieved through that personal connection um, which is why I continue to go to, you know, conferences and user groups and, and try and go out there and, and meet people. Um, because if it was just me, even if it was just me beavering away at my blog, I don't think that would be enough to be able to sustain a business. So now my last question, Chris, where can our listeners find out more about you on the web and the kind of services that you provide? So my company website is www.crossjoin.co.uk. Um, I am based in the UK, but I do uh, kind of on-site work all over Europe and the UK. Uh, and I do a fair amount of um, work with um, US customers remotely um, because it's, it's not really worth anybody's while for me to, to kind of travel all the way to the US uh, just for a, a day or two. Um, but uh, that's where you can find my contact details and what I do. Uh, but really, you know, that's that's just the, my kind of brochure where um, really if you want to see what I do and what I'm interested in, what I can help you with, just read my blog, which, as you said, is um, www.blog.crossjoin.co.uk. Um, that's where you can see, you know, you can read my blog and, and find out uh, what I'm doing and um, if that's what you're doing if that's what you need some help with then we can talk I will certainly add the uh, URL to our show notes and I really want to uh, thank you for your time today and for your insights much appreciated it's been a pleasure thank you you have a great one thank you